This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Coming up on today's show, Canada's High Commissioner to the United Kingdom will join us, one of the busiest guys in the world. Janet Brown will join us to discuss Pierre Polyev's historic win and what it means going into the next election campaign, and the history of oil and gas in our country. How did we get to the position where we'd love to help out Europe, but you know what? Can't really do it. Uh, really looking forward to this next conversation. Uh, as we just heard, um, Canada declaring a national day of mourning for Monday, the 19th of September, which is the day that Queen Elizabeth II will be laid to rest in a funeral in the UK that, um, well, is shaping up to be one of the biggest global events, certainly in my lifetime. It, uh, it just, all, all the different reports and all the different preparations and plans that are being made. And at the center of it all, uh, representing Canada, is Ralph Goodale, who is Canada's High Commissioner to the United Kingdom and delighted that he has time to join us today. Mr. Goodale, thanks so much for your time. I know you must be incredibly busy right now. Well, I'm very glad to be with you. And, and yes, it is a, a very busy time in, in London. Uh, the last number of days... Uh, since Her Majesty passed away on uh, on Thursday afternoon, uh, have been just jam packed with uh, uh, preparations. This sad event uh, has been planned for for quite some time, yeah. uh, but when it uh, when it actually happens and it's uh, it's just breaking around you, it's uh, uh, it's uh, an incredible feeling uh, there's there's um, so much uh, genuine affection and respect and love and warmth uh, for her late majesty uh, and all of that is very evident around around London and meantime while all of that uh, human emotion is there the mourning and the grieving uh, there's also uh, uh, a major logistical challenge that has to be faced there expecting that in that area between Trafalgar Square, Buckingham Palace, Whitehall, and uh, Westminster Abbey, uh, there are likely to be uh, something over 3 million people gathering wow. uh, between uh, now and, and Monday. The lying in state uh, starts tomorrow, and uh, right as we're speaking, the, uh, uh, the aircraft, the Royal Air Force, is... Uh, uh, flying uh, Her Majesty's body from Scotland, where she's been lying in state for the last couple of days, uh, from Scotland to um, uh, to London, and she'll arrive here probably within the next half hour on her last journey. Obviously, uh, UK running most of this, as you would expect, in terms of the UK uh, governments there, uh, the royal family, things like that. But Canada, where where does Canada fit in being, uh, you know, a member of the Commonwealth, very prominent? Uh, you know, she was here 22 times. How involved are you and other Canadians there in what's going on this week? Well, there's a, a lot of tremendous communication between 
uh, all of the uh, Commonwealth countries, particularly uh, the 14 of the Commonwealth countries that are considered part of the realm where Her Her Majesty has been the head of state and where King Charles is now the head of state. Uh, There are 14 of us. Um, Canada, uh, right at the very top of the list. Uh, the uh, the palace, the British government, the, uh, the the foreign secretary's office, and the prime minister's office, uh, together with uh, our prime minister's office in Canada, the Privy Council office, and Rideau Hall, the office of the of the Governor General. There's uh, just constant uh, communication uh, flowing uh, back and forth all the time. We're very fortunate. Uh, that there uh, is a young Canadian uh, woman, Jennifer Jordan Safey, uh, who is uh, uh, in Prince Charles, now King Charles, uh, personal office. Uh, and she is a tremendous asset for Canada. We have great relationships uh, uh, with uh, with the new king's um, staff. Uh, and it, it's, uh, it's logistically very complicated, but everybody is working in a very collaborative manner. Um, and and this this is going to be uh, a very uh, successful occasion because everyone wants this to be a magnificent tribute to a magnificent monarch. And it will be, as I said, uh, an historic moment, no doubt. You mentioned um, King Charles. You've already had a chance to meet him in capacity as king, right? That happened um, earlier this week. Tell us about that. Uh, y- yes, and it was... Uh, um, uh, a very uh, interesting occasion, a very somber occasion, a lot of um, grief and mourning in the room for, for everybody who was there. But from those of us in other countries, this is a, a matter of, you could say, constitutional solemnity. For uh, for Prince Charles, of course, it's his mother. Yeah. Uh, and anyone who has had the tragic experience of losing their mom uh, knows what that, that feeling is like. Uh, he, however, uh, does not have the uh, the opportunity to do very much of his grieving in private. It's all very public. Uh, and one of his first public occasions was uh, that accession council where uh, the uh, leading officials in the realm, including from Canada, uh, acknowledged the uh, the death of Her Majesty and the lawful ascension to the throne of His Majesty. Um, Canada was involved in that, and then the next day, this would be on Saturday, uh, there was a formal reception and audience hosted uh, by the new king and the the new queen consort uh, for the 14 countries that are members of the realm. So again, Canada was uh, uh, very prominent on on that occasion. Um, On all of these events, uh, there's a sense of history in the room, the changing of one era to the next. Uh, something profound in terms of the magnitude of that change. Uh, grief and mourning, of course, for Her Majesty. Uh, a sense of anticipation about what the new king will be like and what his priorities will be and where he will travel first and so forth. Um, and, and critically, from the point of view of uh, constitutional monarchy, a sense of continuity. Mm-hmm. That whatever the hurly-burly of politics might be like in any of our countries, and there's lots of that in all of our countries. There's also the stability, the continuity, the uh, the permanency that comes from having a separate head of state as opposed to head of government. 
uh, and the uh, uh, the consistency and the sense of, of of inclusion and cohesion and values that comes from the monarchy. Uh, chatting with Ralph Goodale, Canada's um, High Commissioner in the UK. Uh, I, I know you're very busy, so I won't take up too much more of your time. One more question, though. Um, you're sort of in the eye of the storm here, and I don't want to uh, make light of this, but, I mean, you could call this the hottest ticket on the planet, and we know that the organizers have said you're going to have to limit how many people can actually attend, like how many you know, dignitaries each country can send and limit it to a head of state. In terms of Canada and our representation at the actual funeral on Monday, what are you anticipating? Who will be there and how will that play out? The official mourners are the Governor General, the Prime Minister, and the High Commissioner. Okay. Uh, there, there will be, uh, in addition to those uh, in the official party, uh, uh, another group of Canadians, relatively small. That has not been precisely determined at this stage. Uh, the negotiations, negotiations and discussions are going back and forth between Rideau Hall and the Palace and uh, the Prime Minister's Office and the High Commission. Uh, this, is, this is a very difficult um, arrangement to yeah. try to, uh, to arbitrate, to be fair to everyone, to be inclusive, uh, when th- there would be probably thousands of people from Canada who would like to be uh, at the funeral to pay their final respects, and uh, probably the end number is, uh, you know, a dozen or so. That's it, It's going to be difficult to sort all of that out, and I don't uh, I don't envy the protocol officers who have to make those those decisions. But yeah. the the balance will be struck to try to to represent the very best of Canada. Uh, Mr. Guerrero, thank you so much uh, for spending a few minutes with us today. We really appreciate your time, sir. Um, coming up, we're going to have a conversation here about Pierre Polyev and uh, his next steps going forward. He did announce today, uh, at least some of the people on his leadership team, House Leader is Andrew Scheer, a name we know. A party whip will be Kelly Lynn Findlay. Deputy whip is Chris Workington, also the question period coordinator. His deputy leaders, he's named two, Tim Upple. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Of our province? And Melissa Lansman of Ontario. So he's starting to uh, put together his shadow cabinet and make some plans. The interesting thing will be how he handles himself. And I'm not going to say he pivoted. I'm not going to say he changed his um, stance on anything. He certainly didn't. But um, he's been talking a lot about hope over the past couple of days since winning on Saturday. And that is some some heady stuff. It's some powerful stuff. It's uh, It'll resonate. 
He's, he's an effective politician. He really and truly is. Is he effective enough? Um, some of the stats we'll get into uh, throughout the course of this interview. He has a hill to climb when it comes to a lot of Canadians, but let's get into it. We're going to chat with Janet Brown, who is a pollster and political commentator. She joins us now. Hi, Janet. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. So when we talk about Polyev, I mean, what he's been talking about right from the very beginning is exactly what a lot of Albertans want to hear from this Prime Minister, right? Blistering attacks on the Trudeau Liberals and a heady mix of freedom and oil and gas. I mean, the greatest hits for Albertan Conservatives. I mean, he's got exactly what he wants from them. They're all in, locked and loaded, right? always locked and loaded for the or, or Albertans are always locked and loaded for the conservatives. Yeah. Um you know they they've won big in Alberta for you know every election that I can remember in recent history. So um Pierre Polyev has taken the heart of conservatism and he has made it even more secure. The question is, and I, I mean, of course, he knows he has his bedrock of support in the West, and conservatives typically do. Um, but when you take a look at what happened in the leadership race, he won big in pretty much every single riding across the country. I think there was eight uh, where he didn't actually win. So, I mean, can we say it's just Alberta support, or does he have conservative support from coast to coast to coast? You know, I think everybody was blown away by his his clear, firm win on the weekend. Um, both his supporters and his detractors had to just kind of, you know, do that little I'm not worthy bow because yeah. it was remarkable to win that much. And like you said, he won uh, 330 seats out of 338. Um, six, six of them that he didn't win were in Quebec, two in Ontario. I mean, that is as decisive as it comes. And then when you look at just the sheer number of votes cast, um, you know, the heart of it was here in Alberta, but th- this party now has more members than any party in Canadian history has ever had. So um, whether you like Pierre Polyev or not, you have to give him props for having just a, a, a crushing um, victory uh, by any measure at all. And you know what, as I was saying earlier, Janet, he is an extremely effective politician. I mean, you watch him, just the speeches he's been giving over the past two days, the number of sound bites, they just fall from his lips one after the other. I mean, it's all carefully scripted. I understand that, but it doesn't sound scripted. It sounds natural. They resonate. I mean, he really is a skilled politician in that respect. Well, and you said, you know, he hasn't really changed since the beginning of the campaign. And I wouldn't say he's changed either, but he's certainly evolved, right? And so, um, I mean, this is going to sound like a really petty thing, but one of the things that's changed is, if you remember sort of a couple years ago, three years ago, I guess now, thinking back to the SNC-Lavalin hearings with Judy Wilson-Raybould, when he was just such a sort of scathing debater in that, um, there was something in his tone that was kind of like nasally and annoying, right? And that's something he's worked on. So, you know, not only has he worked on all of his talking points, he's worked on the tenor of his voice. And now and now he doesn't have that little irritation in it. He sounds very commanding. And like I said, it's a subtle thing, but it, it makes it easier to listen to than, than the cadence he had a few years ago. Now, the question here, Janet, and it's the one that's dogged him right from the beginning of the campaign. First job was to win the leadership of the Conservative Party, which he did resoundingly, as we said. Mm-hmm. Some interesting stats from David Coletto of Abacus Data yesterday saying, you know, according to his polling firm, when Scheer was elected leader, 21% of Canadians had positive feelings about him, 18 negative. O'Toole, 21 positive, 19 negative. Polyev, 22 positive, so about the same. 
27 negative. So more people have negative feelings about it. Now, this is not conservatives. This is in general Canadians across the country. So he does come from behind, at least based on what the other two are facing. Yeah, but you know what's more important? More people have an opinion on Polyev yes. than ever had an opinion on Sheer, right? And so, you know, he's made ripples. He's made noise. And he he had to... Um, he. he he made a very concerted effort to appeal to the kind of people he thought he could get to come out and vote. I always say that, you know, elections are about who shows up. And he scanned the the, the political reality and he said, you know, the people who are going to show up to, for me are the people who are angry about lockdowns, um, who supported the convoy, um, who, who are against vaccinations. He spotted them as a group that he could mobilize and he really appeals to them. Now that turned a whole bunch of people off, but those people were never going to buy yeah. a conservative membership. Now he's won the conservative membership and in the speech he gave on the weekend, he was three-quarters of the way through the speech before he really even mentioned COVID or lockdowns. He got a huge um, response from the audience. They started chanting, freedom, freedom. So the crowd was definitely that freedom crowd. But he took a long time before he got there because... After he won the leadership, he wasn't talking to the people in the room anymore. He was talking to the people watching him on TV, the people who'd never buy a membership, but the people who'd come out and vote for him on Election Day. So this is, a, I mean, it's going to be fascinating to watch because uh, it's something that I think other politicians in his party have faced, um, and we might see it at the provincial level too, where you have a situation where he did what he had to do to win the party, and as you say, some of the messages that he was sharing and some of the platform stances that he took during the leadership campaign really put him at odds with a lot of Canadians outside of the Conservative Party, but if he shifts, if he pivots, if he softens his stance, then he's Aaron O'Toole. Um, how does he navigate that? Well, that's the thing. Aaron O'Toole, I think, for a lot of conservatives, appeared to have softened, and that yeah. bothered them. And and Polyev so far doesn't appear to have softened. He just appears to, as I said, evolve or shift, right? So he didn't say anything that contradicted his opinions on the convoy or freedom or vaccines or anything, but it wasn't his main focus. His main focus was inflation. And if you ask Canadians what their top concern is, you know, inflation is, is right up there. Um, certainly, I did some polling in June asking people what they thought the most important issue facing the province was. And by far, it was inflation and cost of living. So, you know, he, he was talking about the things that members cared about. Now he's, he's pivoting. Maybe that's not the right word, but he's shifting to the things that voters care about. That's not exactly what Aaron O'Toole did, and that's what got Aaron O'Toole in trouble. Yeah, as long as he sticks to the stances that he made. Now, the other uh, player in all of this, of course, is Justin Trudeau. And we, we know that Trudeau fatigue is real, and there are even people within the party starting to say, maybe we need to make a shift. I was surprised they let him take him into the last election, to be honest with you. But... Um, he, if he does lead the Liberals into the next election, will be facing an opponent, well, for the first time, really. I, I don't think Andrew Scheer or Aaron O'Toole really had what it took to go toe-to-toe -to -toe at the national level. Polyev does. Uh, he's going to be facing somebody in debates, somebody on the campaign trail, who is a formidable opponent. Uh, how does that change the way that the national political landscape is shaping up? 
Well, you know, Trudeau has said that he is going to run in the next election. Now, that's probably what he should be saying, whether he is or right. he isn't yep. running in the next election. So, but, but you know, if we're going to speculate that he is going to run, absolutely, it's going to be for for us political watchers, for people like you and me who just love when it's interesting, it's going to be a really fascinating race because they are two very sort of commanding um, debaters in their own different ways, right? But they're both really good at at um, stirring up passions. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we like to fool ourselves into thinking that, like, you know, human beings are rational and that when we go to vote, we make rational decisions. But actually what human beings are are emotional people who, who rationalize rather than think rationally. And so um, when the two of them can sort of, when you've got two leaders who can stir up the emotion that both of these can, um, it's really, really going to make things interesting because that's what engages people in politics. And um, like I said, we're not as rational as we think we are, but when uh, when we can get pulled into the emotional excitement of uh, politics, um, then races become really, really interesting. And as you say, both of these guys have a proven track record of doing exactly that. So mm-hmm. it's going to mm-hmm. be fascinating to watch. Janet, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Right now, we're going to pay a few minutes' attention to a situation we've talked about before. And Global News is launching a series called Landlocked, uh, talking about um, Canada's energy dilemma. And it's really come to light recently when you see what's going on in Europe, right? And we've talked a lot about it and the fact that Russia is, uh, you know, throttling back the natural gas supply to major parts of Europe. And there's big concerns about what that's going to mean this winter. And it's caused Germany to change their plans around nuclear. It's changed their plans around coal. Uh, they're trying to source different... Um, resources as best they can without much success. They signed a deal with Canada to bring on hydrogen starting in 2025. Not going to do much for them this winter. Of course, Canada has stood up through it all and said, um, we have a, an obligation to support our allies and we have the resources and we uh, are, are able to help them. But we're not, bottom line. Uh, Christian Freeland said last month that we have a political responsibility to do whatever we can to help them with this energy crisis that they're going through. They know that Canada is there, and we are working on all the practical ways that we can support Europe. Question is, though, how many of those ways are there? Because of the history around oil and gas in this country and uh, where we find ourselves in 2022, How much can we really do to help? Let's have a conversation now with Timothy Egan, who is the president and CEO of the Canadian Gas Association. Mr. Egan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Shay. So it's great for Canada to stand up and say, yes, we have an obligation and we have the resources. We need to do what we can to help. But we've been shown very clearly over the last month or two, there's not much we can do to help, right? We're not in a position because we don't have the infrastructure. Well, Shay, I think that's right to to a certain degree. That, that you have to think about what we, what could we do immediately, what could we do right. medium term, what could we do long term, long term, right? sure. and yeah, and immediately we could actually find ways to push more gas into the United States for export to Europe. Um, the Americans have clearly ramped up uh, their efforts, and we're completely interconnected with them. As you know, it's an integrated. Uh, transmission delivery system across North America. So, 
So that's something we could do in the very near term. In the but the medium to long term, um, there's a lot more we could do, and uh, but it requires building a lot more infrastructure, as you noted. Yeah. So going back historically speaking, I mean, was there ever a time when pipelines were an easy conversation? I mean, you know all the energies here in Alberta, but getting it spread out to where it needs to go has seems to be a problem for the last several years. Was there ever a time in this country where it was easy to get that done? Well, I think it's a question you could ask about any infrastructure, right? Um, was there a time when it was easy to build roads? Was there a time when it was easy to build ports and other things? And and frankly, I, I think it was easier, um, say, 50, 75 years ago when we were starting to build pipelines. And we built them uh, pretty systematically across the country uh, and, you know, have, have now literally hundreds of thousands of kilometers right across the country. Um, it has definitely become more complicated. Uh, in part because we're, you know, often touching on major urban areas or or areas that are now recognized as needing particular environmental protection. Sure. Um, but I don't think it's impossible at all. And I think it can be done, and it's being done in other parts of the world, particularly, Shay, in the United States, where through an Obama presidency, through a Trump presidency, and now in a Biden presidency, they build pipelines pretty quickly and their standards are comparable to ours so i think it should be easier than it is in canada so i mean obviously geography is a massive barrier in canada the pipelines help us get around that but now we've run into as you say other considerations so how do we work our way around those if it's if you say they're making better progress in the united states what's the difference why are we running into problems here so I think it's a great question. I, I'm not sure I have the answer uh, for why it's so much easier there, irrespective of who's in power, by the way. Sure, right? yeah. And that was my point. And they have the same environmental concerns presence. that we have and the same environmental groups that are, you know, making noise and, and making stating the case against. So, I mean, they have a lot of the same conditions. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, I think that's very true. I, I think there, uh, there are a couple of factors that at play here. One is we've created a particularly onerous regulatory framework, uh, in the, in the name of meeting certain environmental objectives, but I think, uh, that it's, it's way too onerous. And I think we can achieve environmental objectives without having so aggressive a regulatory framework. So we need, we need to simplify our framework. And if it's, too challenging in the very near term to simplify to simplify the framework shade then i'd say pass a special resolution to expedite it in light of the current uh, crisis because you know as you noted off the top europe's in an extraordinary moment of crisis i mean we're talking about yeah. people freezing and um shortages in germany shortages in the uk scenes of what's happening in the netherlands like this is very very serious so you know i think we should take every measure we can i i was particularly uh, pleased by the Deputy Prime Minister's remarks. She's been very forthright about this. Uh, as you know, she's got roots in Alberta. She's got an understanding of, of the issues, and she's also got a connection to Ukraine and that part of the world. So I think she's sincere in her comments, and I think she could she could help us by demonstrating the leadership to really try to push some stuff through more quickly, because that's what we need to do. Right now, Europe has a commitment to be off of Russian gas by 2030. The amount of gas Europe has traditionally taken from Europe, uh, from Russia, is roughly the same amount of gas as Canada produces every year. If we were to double our gas production, we could meet that European need. Now, that's a very significant order, mm -hmm. right? But if we started to think about it in those terms, recognizing that we have literally hundreds of years of supply, you noted Alberta is a center for the energy industry, but of course, 
Our gas resources are massive in British Columbia. They're massive in Saskatchewan. They're massive in, in regions right across the country. We're, we're incredibly blessed with this resource, and, and we produce it more cleanly than just about anybody in the world to higher standards than anybody in the world. So shouldn't we be thinking about getting Canadian molecules to help the world? The question, though, and I'm, I'm not disagreeing with anything that you're saying, is it too late? Um, has, has the window started closing? Obviously, if we were in a position and we had done what we're talking about now, Five, ten years ago, we would be in a position to help out our European allies and Germany and the UK wouldn't be facing some of the issues that they're facing. Um, are we talking about preventing another crisis five or ten years down the road or um, what's the, you know, our prime minister says there's no business case. What is the business case? Because we know it's not going to be something that's going to be effective this fall. Can't be. There's not enough time. That's correct. And uh, I think the Prime Minister was referring specifically to certain projects off the East Coast, yes. that, and he said that he hasn't seen a business case yet. I think a business case is determined by what the market conditions are, right? What's the demand? What does the buyer want? Uh, and you can also, you know, adjust the conditions to improve the business case. So the Prime Minister has... Uh, at his disposal, the means to make the business case much, much better for Canadian gas. Now, the bulk of Canadian gas is, as you noted, in Western Canada, and the single largest opportunity is to move more of it to the West Coast to export. And that helps Europe as well, because any gas going into the global market offers the opportunity to offset other gas that's already in the market, right? So that means that if Canada is putting more gas into the Asian market, then current Asian suppliers, say, in the Middle East might in turn supply Europe. So whatever we do in Canada is helpful, and there are ways to make those business cases better. But on your question about about the timing of all of this, there's an immediate need. This winter is is looking to be a pretty frightening one in Europe and in other parts mm-hmm. of the world. But this isn't a problem that's going away. Why isn't Canada, you know, one of the most um, respected nations in the world with some of the highest standards in the world, a leading supplier of energy to the world? We should be. Um, we would help raise overall environmental standards. We would serve the interests of all Canadians. Uh, and, you know, we can make a really positive contribution. And uh, when we talk about seven years, we, you know, it's, it's, it's almost joking to say that's long term because that's around the corner, frankly. Sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And who knows what, you know, what we're going to need in eight years, right? If we're in another situation like this, it would be nice to have taken right. those steps. Um, is yeah. there an opportunity to do something with the United States? Do they have all the gas they need? Their pipelines are full. They're exporting all they can. Or are they saying, you know what? We might be able to source some of your natural gas and uh, use it in that regard in terms of helping Europe as well. We know they have the export facilities. Well, look, I think any conversation around that possibility is is a productive conversation. And I think if, you know, Canadian industry and American industry and Canadian officials and American officials were to sit down and say what's possible in this moment of crisis, we would probably find more could be done. Um, the Americans also sit on a, just an extraordinary wealth of, of natural gas. And uh, and they have developed that resource uh, very quickly, as you noted, and they have all kinds of export facilities. And now they're talking about building all kinds of more, and they're talking about expediting their processes to build more. So I think we should be working hand-in-glove with the Americans on this. In light of what's going on in Europe, 
Jim, are, are we seeing, you know, is government sort of saying, okay, let's see if we can't make some changes and, and step in to make sure that we're not in a position where our allies, and who knows who might be next, uh, is in a crisis situation because of energy, even though we are in a position to help if we if we build the instrument. Has there been a change in the mindset around this and maybe more of an understanding that this is something we need to work towards? Are you seeing any indication of that? Yeah, you noted the the remarks by the Deputy Prime Minister. Um, we've also seen um, other ministers uh, note, I, I think, what I would describe as a progressively more positive uh, 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 public reaction to the uh, prospect of more Canadian LNG going to the global market. Uh, and, and I think that's positive, and I think that's a response to the fact that um, so many Canadians are alarmed by what's going on and are starting to speak up about it. And Let's face it, we've been pretty complacent about energy because we've got it in abundance. It's historically been really affordable, really reliable. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, we're seeing that there are energy crises around the world. And we're reflecting on that and thinking, what can we do to help? And I think the government's doing that as well. So, you know, that's good. Um, uh, any any opportunity to help the government deepen its understanding of of the opportunity we're standing by ready to help and and you know the prime minister is famous for saying the world needs more canada and i think the world needs more canadian energy and uh and we've got an opportunity to deliver and and you know and it, what it comes down to i think is it always is, is we have the ambition and the things that we can all agree on uh, in terms of the environment and things like that but then there's the reality of where we are and what we can do today and somewhere in the middle is the common ground it, it can't be one or the other we but we can work on both things at the same time that needs to be the the, the path forward at least to my thinking i think you're right shay and i you know i go back to a point i made about about the canadian gas molecules one of the cleanest in the world so if the in the world market the molecules coming from a bunch of places with lower standards where emissions are higher where uh, governance is 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 not nearly as transparent you know where there are a host of other challenges wouldn't you say hey canada could actually be raising the global standard by putting more into the market Canadians have benefited from affordable, reliable natural gas for decades and decades, and we believe they're going to continue to benefit from it from decades to come. And we're constantly improving our performance standards, how we do what we do. And look, we want energy to be affordable. We're all facing an affordability crisis right now with higher prices yeah. and inflation, and, and energy affordability is key to that. So, look, I think the, the natural gas industry can help, and it can help domestically, and it can help internationally, and we, and we want to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, great conversation, Timothy. Th- thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.